Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Prime Minister loses his bid for a seat on the UN Security Council. Where does he go from here? Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, ejected from the House yesterday for calling a block MP a racist. The block wants an apology. The NDP refuses to back down. And the tragic death of George Floyd has spawned many discussions, including the use of logos like Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben's. We'll have that discussion on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Canada lost its bid uh, to gain one of the two temporary seats on the U.N. Security Council, lost to Norway and Ireland. Uh, and th- this was something that uh, the Prime Minister was working very diligently on. Uh, but at the end of the day, it looks like, uh, well, you know what? If you don't do the work, you don't get the position. And that's really what it comes down to, because the other two countries have simply uh, outmaneuvered us. And uh, you might remember the Prime Minister stated uh, at his first election that Canada is back and criticized Stephen Harper for not doing more to gain a U.N. Security Council seat. And then it turns out that when Stephen Harper lost, he had more votes than what Justin Trudeau had yesterday. And uh, as a result, this uh, voting didn't even make it to the second round. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a contributor to Global News, a commentary right now that is on our website. Trudeau's U.N. vote uh, Trudeau's UN vote loss is rebuke of his preachy foreign policy. I'm going to read you the first paragraph. It's pretty powerful. Uh, the United Nations General Assembly has strongly rejected Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's worldview and his narcissist personal brand of diplomacy. For Canada's uh, candidacy to not even make it to the second round of balloting against two minnows with shark's teeth, Norway and Ireland is a sharp lesson to all those Canadians who travel abroad and confuse polite smiles for great affection and respect for our country. Clearly, we are neither so uh, neither so great nor as loved as our Prime Minister uh, thinks we are. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Matthew Fisher is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Are you surprised what had happened yesterday? I'm not particularly surprised because every single person that I spoke to in the diplomatic world or is involved in foreign policy outside Canada told me we didn't have a prayer. Uh, in Canada, a lot of people thought that also, uh, but the Prime Minister's office in the last few weeks conducted a very aggressive campaign with the media and with their, their friends in Canada to suggest we were narrowing the gap coming from behind and uh, had a good chance at this seat. Uh, the fact, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Scott, that we did not even make it to the second round is one heck of a rebuke. You know, we are a G7 nation. We are far wealthier, far bigger, and supposedly far more influential than Norway or Ireland. And to not get to the second round, I don't know. And as Stephen Harper lost in the third round his candidacy uh, back in 2010, and you're quite right, the Prime Minister went out of his way uh, in 2015 to say Canada's back. That was really a dig at Stephen Harper and his idea and the idea put out by his party that Canada's reputation had been terribly damaged by Stephen Harper. The reality, I spent most of my life overseas, the reality is we don't count for much with anybody anyway, 
but there was respect for Stephen Harper because they thought he had principles and firm positions, whether they agreed with them or not is something else. Whereas uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is regarded as a vacillator and somebody who's quite uh, superficial about foreign policy issues and commands nothing like the respect that Stephen Harper did. They may like him more personally, that I don't know. But uh, uh, on the basis of what his foreign policy was, it is pretty darn clear that uh, uh, Trudeau is not highly regarded. And the problem for him is that I don't know why we want this position anyway, Scott. I don't think the UN Security Council a temporary position is worth it. But since he put so much into it, his personal brand, you have to live by the sword and then die by the sword if things don't work out. And uh, he said... Basically, this is all about me. I will personally get this for you because I am so popular and because the world likes my ideas. And uh, I guess the world doesn't. Uh, Do you think the prime minister was surprised? Um, You know, many have said all form, no substance. Uh, The others simply outworked us. So how did he feel he could get this without putting in the work? It's a mystery to me, you know, a, a real mystery because... Uh, He said Canada was back. By that, he meant we were going to get more involved in peacekeeping, more involved in humanitarian aid in the third world. Uh, Stephen Harper cut both of those things. uh, But then Justin Trudeau went out and cut them again. So he he didn't uh, uh, do anything different than what Stephen Harper had done, except that he did it with a smaller pool of money, which meant that effectively uh, it was hurting uh, those uh, causes uh, even more. The uh, Irish and the Norwegians have uh, been out in the world much more than Canada, although they're small nations. Ireland has done it through peacekeeping. They have far, far more peacekeepers per capita than Canada does. We had, according to the Canadian uh, press, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had 60 people on UN peacekeeping missions uh, I go back and I think those numbers may even be inflated. I think it's 20 or 30. It's certainly far fewer than the thousands that we had before. And for a country our size and our wealth with 70,000 men and women in uniform to only have so few people doing it, well, that just isn't good enough. The Norwegians also do quite a bit in peacekeeping, but they also target their aid. They are famous in Africa as the biggest givers. Certainly, they're the biggest givers by far per capita. And so they conducted, if you like, a steady diplomacy, a stealth diplomacy. Ireland, too, they just were there all the time. Canada really started to show up on this a year or two ago uh, and then accelerated the thing over the winter with, with the prime minister running around saying, uh, look at what we're going to do. But uh, The ideas that he was espousing, Ireland and Norway really kept out of the social issues, although a lot of their policies are similar to Canada's policies on social issues. They kept out of that and talked more about what they do for the third world. The prime minister, our prime minister's idea was the cultural orthodoxies of his government and what seems to appeal to Canadians. That is, big issues for him are the empowerment of women gender diversity, gender balance, we're against racism, we're against climate change. These are all motherhood issues, Scott, and they're all very good, noble values. 
But the United Nations is like the motorcycle gang of nations. Most of the guys who vote are dictators. Uh, they don't want to hear this kind of stuff, this preachy, moralistic stuff from Canada. If you want to win, you've got to be far more strategic, pragmatic, and realistic than we were. We've talked many times on the show about how uh, he seems to cater more to fashionable issues that know that w- that will get him traction back at home. But does this all come down to money, Matthew? I mean, obviously, uh, the other two countries contributed more, did more work, and and, and just simply uh, outworked us. Is it all about money? What are what are some of the other reasons that perhaps because I, I, I'm thinking what he thought is he can go in and razzle dazzle everybody with his charm and get everybody on side without really contributing or doing the work. So what did stop us from getting this? Well, just on the money, if I could say that our economy it dwarfs that of Norway and dwarfs that of Ireland. If we really wanted this, we could have spent much more. I don't think uh, we spent the way the others did. That's a choice, but it's if you plan to win, that's not going uh, to help you. So uh, that is a, a very big issue. As for other reasons uh, that we lost, uh, the Prime Minister is not highly regarded overseas. It is a myth in Canada that he is. Uh, Let's stop. I'm going to stop you right there, Matthew, because, again, all we hear is is how uh, not only Canada, but uh, the prime minister, the way he leads. We are the envy of the world. Are we believing too much of our too many of our own headlines here? Well, yeah, we're drinking our own Kool-Aid for sure. Look at India. India, the prime minister went there and did a song and dance routine, which the Indians found highly offensive. Uh, we did not uh, make any progress whatsoever on a trade um, initiative with India. Instead, India signed a trade deal with Australia, has all kinds of ties with other countries that it's that are our partners. Uh, it's going forward on that. Modi in India, one of the few countries that actually said how they were going to vote, they said they wanted nothing to do with Canada. Yet we have a lot of Indians in Canada. They've been tremendous immigrants. They've done a great job in Canada. And uh, I imagine they're not as keen about the Prime Minister's view on that. The Prime Minister wore blackface, what, three times? Once Mm -hmm. when he was 29 years old and a teacher. And uh, he's apologized for that. Uh, And Canadians seem to have accepted those apologies. uh, And... uh, He's out talking about racism now in the United States and Canada and how we must do better. But he wore that blackface. I cannot believe there are not ambassadors and leaders of countries in the Caribbean and Africa who are not offended about that. And if they were wobbling a bit about who to support, there is that. Uh, About women and empowerment or visible minorities, uh, Ireland, one of Ireland's two senior leaders, is of East Indian descent. Norway has a woman in charge. So when uh, Trudeau comes out and says, we support these values, these other countries can go out and say, yeah, you support them, that's really nice, and we actually do something uh, about this. On trade, we dissed uh, our greatest allies, Japan and Australia, the greatest ones certainly in the Pacific. Uh, and uh, we did this by not showing up to sign a trade deal in Vietnam. Those two leaders of those countries were sitting in the room, literally waiting for Canada to show up with all the TV cameras 
Canada decided it didn't like the wording at the last moment, did not even tell those leaders that it wasn't coming, and uh, if you like, boycotted the meeting. That got no traction in Canada. But when I've been in Japan and Australia, it is the first thing they mentioned. So to me, it's an open question whether the Japanese or the Australians really wanted to vote for Canada. Uh, all around, this, this is a shambles, and we're not taken seriously. China calls Prime Minister Trudeau little potato. I don't think that's uh, meant particularly as a compliment. We have all kinds of issues with them. The Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, she cannot go to Russia. She is a banned person from Russia. Donald Trump has been irritated multiple times by things the Prime Minister has said publicly about him and about the United States. Those are the big three countries in the world. And with you add in India with its billion-plus people like China, there are four countries, the big four, that Canada uh, has bad relations with. This is craziness. And yet to think that we could pull this off because our moral values are better than other countries, uh, it really is embarrassing. Um, I'll play devil's advocate here. Some say that the system, the whole uh, process of getting that seat is stacked against Canada. It's stacked to benefit European countries. Your thoughts on that? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. So, Is why, that why we lost then? Uh, why are we tilting at this windmill? Uh, also, it's an opaque pro, uh, process, so we don't know what um, effectively our bribes are being paid to different countries to vote on whatever. Canada spent a couple of million dollars officially, but unofficially probably was promising much more than that. We will never know. The whole process of so much at the United Nations stinks, but it does at other international organizations too. That's how you end up with China having leading role in human rights commissions, for example, or some of the more odious countries in the Middle East uh, and Russia having a big say in this, but the International Olympic Committee and how they give out the Olympic Games, all of that stinks too. And that is why it really is a motorcycle gang of nations and why, uh, as Leo DeRocher, the old baseball manager, said 50, 60, 70 years ago, nice guys really do finish last. Uh, where does this leave? Many have said that the prime minister has been uh, uh, inactive when it comes to being aggressive with other nations, especially China. Uh, and again, some saying due to uh, trying to get this seat. Now that the seat has been lost and this is all for naught, uh, where does this leave the Huawei 5G? Where does this leave uh, the Huawei CFO, the two Michaels? Will we see a different approach now that we've passed all of this uh, pomp and circumstance? Maybe, but I kind of doubt it. Maybe. Uh, I mean, you're quite right that there is an opportunity here for Canada finally to take a stronger stance. You know, we have not condemned China's mistreatment of the Uyghur Muslim minority. We've been kind of soft uh, compared to some other countries, certainly, in criticizing what China is doing about Hong Kong. And uh, on the question of the uh, uh, of the technology that Huawei wants to sell us for phones, we're out of sync now with just about all our allies on this. But the Prime Minister has received advice from the various national security agencies, the intelligence agencies, and from the military that we should have nothing to do with this as a nation. And yet we've spent a few years dithering over it. 
When are we going to finally move on in any of this? When are we going to show some spine, some backbone? Uh, I, people listening to this may think I go too far and that I'm being too uh, apocalyptic uh, about all of this, but, but really, what does Canada stand for? We say we're for human rights, but won't say anything about uh, the terrible treatment of a million people in Western China, the Uyghur Muslim minority, for example. Uh, we do some very dubious things in the Middle East, and we're selling uh, armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia. Uh, where do we actually stand? This is the opportunity going forward to take positions. I think, though, more likely, we'll just sort of slough this all off. Today, the prime minister said that Canada stuck with it, all its values. It was all about our values, and we were going to continue telling the world about our supposedly superior values. Well, go ahead. The world doesn't care. Hmm. Many have said the uh, Prime Minister overpromises and underdelivers here domestically. Is that the feeling on the world stage? Does he have the capacity for this? I don't think we have, and it's not just with this Prime Minister, but with many Prime Ministers. We don't really have much of a profile on the international stage. You know, Scott, when we travel, we put little maple leaves on our backpacks, and everybody is nice to us. We confuse that for uh, deep affection and respect. Uh, and I think we're, we are wrong about that. Uh, at home, certainly the Prime Minister has a reckoning facing him because he gets a bump in the polls of 1% or 2% every time he spends a few billion more dollars. But that money is going to have to be paid back at some point. And the Auditor General today is saying the deficit is going to be 268 billion dollars and even before the coronavirus the prime minister promised there wouldn't be a deficit after a few years and yet he was running a very big deficit then he didn't deliver there overseas we didn't deliver on humanitarian aid we didn't deliver on peacekeeping uh we've not contributed to uh norad upgrades for ballistic missile defense at all we promised nato that we'll spend two percent on defense there's been no movement on that whatsoever. We are still doing absolutely nothing about the F-35. We're still thinking about it. On all of these issues, it seems the government policy is to dither and dither and dither. And because we're morally righteous, that the world will say okay with that. But I, I don't think the world is okay with that. What I wish is that Canadians actually became interested. The media, academics, the public really are not engaged on these issues, and they do matter. The world's a very complex and dangerous place, and getting more so, and Canada really is on the sidelines. Uh, what now for the Prime Minister? He gambled a lot on this. How do they sell all this moving forward? Well, domestically, you know, it's not my strong suit because I spent 35 years overseas, but domestically, uh, it's clear he's going to try to sell the idea that we have the best moral values in the world. Overseas, what we have to do is try through bilateral and multilateral relationships, strengthen our alliances, take a, a tough stance. 85% of the Canadian public are very distrustful of China, don't really want us to be involved with China. Well, should not the government reflect that policy in some way. We have many opportunities, either in international groupings with like-minded people or on our own, 
to state our position, to stake out territory, to stand for something as, for example, Australia does in so many issues. That is the challenge for the prime minister. But so far, there is not a hint of it. His experience internationally, Scott, mostly I've traveled with the guy, what, five times overseas. His experience is he knows where all the good hotels and restaurants are are in these places because he grew up going to them. He doesn't know the nitty-gritty of Africa. He only spent two days in Africa before he went there to try to get African votes this winter. His foreign minister, Christian Freeland, before, now deputy prime minister, I don't believe she ever went to Africa. If Canada is going to be a senior player, we've got to get out to places where it counts, and we've got to get our hands a little bit dirty. Matthew Fisher has been with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and commentary is Trudeau's UN vote loss is rebuke of his preachy foreign policy. Matthew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Tim Powers, political commentator, managing director at Abacast Data and vice chairman, Summa Strategies. Lots to talk about today. Uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, ejected yesterday from the House. Also, uh, the prime minister losing his uh, attempt at a seat at the U.N. Security Council. Tim Powers is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good to talk to you, Scott. Abacus, my, my friend, not Abacast. Uh, you sounded very European s- in your description. I'm sorry. I, I sounded like I was talking about the Genesis song instead of uh, your company. Maybe that's what it was. I'm singing Genesis songs during Cabin Fever, Tim. Uh, well, I, if that's all that you need, Scott, man, you go for it. You, you sing, you, you belt out some <laughs> Phil Collins to suit you. You know what? You should get them to rework that song. You might have a nice little, uh, you know, soundtrack yeah, spot you on your hands for that. Yeah, all right. right. Good, good idea. Let's move on. Uh, obviously, some pretty serious stuff happening in the House yesterday. Going to play you a clip of uh, Jugmeet Singh, NDP leader. He was ejected from the House of Commons uh, yesterday after saying that a block MP was a racist for not supporting an NDP motion to deal with systematic racism within the RCMP. Here's what the NDP leader had to say. And I looked back and I saw that MP not only say no, but make eye contact with me and just kind of brush his hand, dismiss it. And in that moment, I got angry. I'll be honest. I got angry, but I'm sad now because why can't we act? Why can't we do something to save people's lives? Let me just put it this way. We had a motion to call out the systemic racism in the RCMP and provide some really clear steps to stop it in the future. Anyone who wants to vote against that is a racist, yes. All right, that is Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP. Two clips there put together. The first, obviously, a very emotional Jagmeet Singh uh, talking about his feelings and what had happened in the House. Tim, your thoughts on what all went down? Oh, there's so much in all of that, Scott. I think, first of all, um, Mr. Singh, like many, many, many people, um, is... Uh, it's looking at everything that's happening around the world today and incidents in Canada, including the couple he cited, he was uh, indirectly referring to uh, with the RCMP and uh, New Brunswick up north, uh, and very passionate about the need to uh, address uh, systemic racism as, as he sees it, and many others do, and all of that. Um, you have the Bloc Quebecois uh, and some of their members very uh, closely aligned with different um, parties in Quebec and um, Premier Legault's government, which, as you'll remember, because we talked a lot about it during the provincial election, 
the federal election, I should say, who uh, who weren't calling out uh, Francois Legault for the provincial law they had there that uh, uh, basically uh, neutered any expression of uh, of, of identity. So. Um, with a block playing uh, to to that position yesterday when Mr. Singh uh, brought forward that motion or, or had that reaction. Um, yeah, it's it, look, I, I'm never going to defend the Bloc Quebecois. I certainly haven't walked in Mr. Singh's shoes. Uh, I can see how he would have been upset and taken that particular view. I will say this. I think, you know, it, it's a little... There's a motion in the House of Commons uh, to to address systemic racism in the RCMP, um, and I think you you should be able though to have a discussion about it that looks at the uh, you know the entirety of the police force and recognizes not every uh, RCMP officer is a racist and like though I don't think that is what the Bloc uh, MP was intending and that's probably what Mr. Singh was trying to point out. Uh, it doesn't seem that this is going to be over anytime soon. Obviously, Jugmeet Singh not changing his position, and now the block leader wants an apology. Where is that going? Around in circles. Um, there was also the block whip. I was just, you know, interestingly watching question period for a few moments, or sorry, COVID-19 questions, uh, before coming on with you. And, and they've written a letter to the speaker saying Mr. Singh, because he called the block MP a racist and was thrown out of the house, should stay out for a while. Look, uh, I, I think the other dynamic that I just mentioned, uh, Quebec secularism rules, um, are playing itself out there because the Bloc and the and the Party Quebec, uh, sorry, the Bloc, yeah, and the and the uh, coalition Avenir de Quebec. There's so many Quebec parties, can't remember them all. Are are, are fairly uh, in line there. We'll know too. I mean, look uh, again, stretch back to the election before the election. Uh, there are many who who were saying that Mr. Singh would have trouble getting elected in certain parts of Quebec uh, because he is a racialized leader. And I'm sure that had great impact uh, on Mr. Singh. And I, I know, I recall during the federal election, uh, when he was asked about the secular law and he made the point, look, I'm running uh, and I'm I'm here uh, and I'm trying to make the point that uh, anybody, regardless of their uh, their history, their ethnicity, can can be a good leader. So there's a lot of back history on all of this between Mr. Singh and, and the Bloc Québécois and the Coalition Avenir de Québec. Uh, Thomas Mulcair uh, spoke out, and I was so- sort of watching this while I was listening to other things, so I, I don't want to uh, quote uh, Mr. Mulcair incorrectly here, but he, he seemed to say that uh, uh, despite the passion and what uh, Jagmeet Singh's point was, it was out of line for him to do what he he did and say what he said. And again, I, I'm not completely 100% accurate on that. I only saw a portion of the clip. But um, uh, is is that valid? Or at this point, with this discussion, considering the passion that uh, that that Jagmeet Singh uh, had here. Um, I don't think he was trying to offend. Again, I don't want to speak for him. But um, uh, was he right in doing what he did? And and that being said, considering how much we're talking about it, it seems perhaps Canada might give him a pass on this. Your thought? 
I think Canada will give Mr. Singh a pass on it. And I think, again, neither you nor I have walked in Mr. Singh's shoes and had some of the no. experiences that, that, that he has had. And I think people are looking at that. I think maybe, the, again, I, I haven't seen Mr. Mulcair's uh, specific quote either. But I think the point maybe Mr. Mulcair is trying to make is, look, um, yeah, it's an extremely emotional time. And for many people who have suffered racism, um, it, 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 it is a time they feel they must seize to speak forcefully about the indignity, the pain, and everything that they've suffered. And we can all get that. Um, but I think, again, not putting words in Mr. Mulcair's mouth, I, I think he's trying to say, though, to don't, you know, respect that people may not understand. They, they may have an ignorance. They may not have your sh- history or shared experience. And because they haven't had that, don't call them a racist without knowing that doesn't excuse their behaviors. But I think and this was the argument. In fact, Mr. Singh himself was trying to make in Quebec during the election. Look, get to know me, come to understand me, build that common ground. And I think the danger in in, in, in some of the debates that we're seeing now is, again, the typical Canadian political challenge, more, but more acutely felt in the U.S., it just becomes about polarities, right? It just becomes, if you don't get this particular perspective, this means you're X and you can't be Y or Z or A or B or C. All right, let's move on. Um, U.N. Security Council seat. We know the prime minister was vying for this, obviously lost out to uh, Ireland and Norway. Most predicted this simply because we didn't do the work. Uh, that the others have done. Why didn't we get this seat? Surprised at any of this? Um, well, I think, look, I, I think Ireland and Norway were always going to be tough competitors. They, you know, who, who doesn't like the Irish? Scott says this one of Irish sure. heritage and the Norwegians, well, you know, they're not bad people either. Um, I, I, I think the more surprising thing, the thing that has to frustrate the Prime Minister and Stephen Harper's probably smiling somewhere, is Stephen Harper didn't do half the campaigning, uh, didn't spend half the money, and he got more votes than Justin Trudeau did when yeah. he went for the Security Council seat. That's I mean, the, Prime Minister's been, the Prime Minister's been spinning hard today that, look, it was the exercise that mattered, not the outcome. And, you know, maybe that's true, but certainly the government was inflating expectations that this was a key foreign policy priority for them. It didn't happen. So uh, you can put the bow on it, uh, but it still doesn't dress up the fact that it wasn't the outcome that uh, that the government wanted. I don't, I don't know if it's fatal to them. I don't think it is on broader foreign policy pursuits, but it's, it's not helpful when you inflate a priority, uh, inflate expectations, and you don't deliver on it. Why didn't we get this seat then? God, I don't know. I, I, the best quote I heard about that, because I'm not an expert in, in U.N. politics, nor would not purport to be, uh, is there were 193 different reasons. And that was a quote by the Canadian ambassador, because there are 193 uh, voting nations, and each has a different uh uh, uh, priority. So I, I don't know if we, uh, I, I don't know. I assume, you know, there were, there were some that were uh, put off by our, our, some of our foreign policy issues. I think there was some complaining about uh, Canada not carrying its weight in um, peacekeeping spending and the Irish are and Canada not living up to other priorities. Uh, like I said, there could be dozens of reasons, if not a full 193 or 192, because we were one of the voters, uh, for why Canada did not win. 
Canadians think that they're well-loved around the world. Everyone loves our prime minister. He's a great brand for uh, the country and, and selling it and such. Uh, do you think he's surprised about this? Do you think he thought he could just go in and, and schmooze his way through this? Well, he did try and set himself up as kind of the new Bill Clinton or Tony Blair, right? The great progressive leader. And initially he was received that way and had and has and had a great foil in, in Donald Trump. I think maybe he and his team believe that his personal appeal could carry Canada to victory. Um, I don't know if it's a you know, a massive rebuke of all of that, but it certainly suggests maybe they miscalculated uh, as to what was uh, the the appeal was, and and thought perhaps force of personality could uh, could could get could get them there, and and celebrity. They they made a lot of Justin Trudeau international rock star that apparently wasn't enough uh, to win, so that causes reassessment. And then you got to look and see legitimately what, what were the foreign policy issues or, you know, what other horse trading was going on that Canada didn't engage in, and maybe, a, and, and maybe we'll never know what that was that uh, prevented them from winning. Uh, obviously, this would have been quite a feather in the cap for the uh, prime minister. Where does this leave him personally moving forward? What's next? This would have been a good distraction uh, coming out of COVID-19. Listen, I don't think this matters much to the broader Canadian public. His critics will seize upon it as failure and and proof that uh, Canada's foreign policy is adrift, and there could be some legitimate arguments to be made in that. But uh, I think right now, as we've seen, his his popularity is high. A lot of that has to do with his response and and all the checks going out the door, to be a tad bit cynical, uh, around uh, around COVID-19 response. Uh, I don't think Canada getting uh, are not getting, excuse me, a UN seat is going to have any real immediate lasting damage on Justin Trudeau. It'll be used by his opponents to portray him as a, as a weak leader. Uh, it'll then come down to how effective they are and other arrows they have in their quiver to uh, to make their point. How are we viewed? How is the prime minister viewed on the world stage? Yeah, I think it depends where you are, right? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if we have that one, you know, for a while there were these global superstar leaders or everybody has a moment like that. Um, I, I think in some places he's well regarded. Certainly, I don't think as seen as the rock star he presented himself to be and, and, and seemingly had some take up in, in other jurisdictions in, in 2015, uh, been five years. So everybody gets blemishes after five years. Look, but I think to be fair, whether it was Trudeau or Harper or, or Mr. Kretchen or Mulroney or Turner or Paul Martin, you, you name a prime minister in the last 30 years, Canada isn't Oh, you know, Canada itself, the Maple Leaf, the brand is still strong around the world. I think it goes up or goes down in small increments depending on the politics of the day. But I think uh, my experience and the experience, I think, of just about everybody listening to this program is if you travel abroad as a Canadian, you, you do get the sense people value Canada. Is this another situation, and I don't mean to pile on the PM here, but I guess I'm going to, is this another overpromise, underdeliver? Is that too harsh? It, it's certainly um, it's certainly in that category, uh, inflating the expectations, right? I mean, this is this is the prime minister's greatest challenge when you're a a vision leader, when you're a leader that that 
trades on hope, and that, that's not a terrible thing, but sometimes you can, particularly this prime minister, stylistically um, create the sense that you're going to be able to move the yardsticks further or change the world in the, the wave of, of a wand, and his critics seize upon that. So, yeah, I mean, this this was self-described high priority. It's not been met. Um, you're going to get the criticism that you, me, and uh, legions of other commentators who are less insightful than you and I are, are laying upon him today. Is it time for the Prime Minister to focus on less fashionable issues? Yeah. Well, I mean, he would argue, well, this isn't fashionable. Look, I'm setting us up for global economic recovery. But look, we got a, a less fashionable issue, but an immediate issue is what is the pathway out? What does yeah. the recovery plan for Canada look like? I get we still can't, you know, crystallize it with perfection or even uh, do some good blueprints on it. But, you know, the snapshot that the Prime Minister is promising on, on July 8th, that's a start. But that's where his focus and his energy should be uh, and, and not worry too much about winning seats in, in, in bodies that maybe are less influential than they once were. Tim Powers has been with us, political commentator, managing director at Abacus Data, and vice chairman of Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us, health policy expert. Doctor, thanks for the time, as always. Uh, Hope you're doing well, Ahmad. Same to you. Thanks, Scott. So, uh, first of all, let's talk about this app, your thoughts. It looks like this is going to be available July 2nd, but I guess like masks or, or physical distancing, it depends on how many jump on board to see how successful this is. What are your thoughts? It's exactly those thoughts, the same ones you had, which is that how successful would the app be? But more specifically, that I think it will get to our target demographic at the moment, which is our young people. We're seeing a higher rate of COVID-19 infection among young adults. Uh, and that is concerning. Uh, so I think the app maybe is one way to sort of be able to get ahead of that problem. Do you think young people will be more inclined to jump on considering their, the way they embrace technology? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, that's the strategy we've been trying to push forward from a health policy perspective is this idea of clear messaging that urges young adults to assess their own risks accurately when they socialize. That's been a key problem, Scott, and and an issue that many policymakers are trying to figure out right now is how do we reach out to our younger demographic? And as Dr. Dr. Teresa Tam said, you know, even if you're young and somewhat invisible, that's not the case. We know now that there are higher rates of COVID-19 among that younger demographic. So what percentage of Ontarians will have to jump on board this app in order to really make it successful? Uh, Ideally, everybody. Uh, but in terms of the specific threshold is what you're talking about, the minimum number that's required to show effectiveness of that, that's going to de- 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 depend on how accessible the app is, how easy it is to get the app, and how, e- how user-friendly it is. So we all know, we've all had circumstances where we download an app and it didn't work smoothly the way we wanted mm-hmm. to, then we give up on it. So the urge here is that to make sure that this app works uh, well right away, that we don't wait for glitches, and reports of problems or crash of the app that we really try to get ahead of this early on with our IT people and people behind the app development to make sure that it runs smoothly uh, so that we have a wide uh, success rate in people using it. 
Doctor, we talked uh, a while back about the increases in Hamilton uh, for young people. That was last week. That seems to have resolved itself here. But how concerned, because we are hearing more reports that this is affecting more and more young people. How concerned are you? Uh, so to be clear here, when, in terms of the policy, is that we're seeing more people testing positive in the younger adults. We are concerned because as we enter the summer period, it's really nice outside like today. The worry is that uh, more young adults are thinking that the, the, the pandemic is over, that the reopening of the province has really prompted some of them to believe they can behave like normal. That's a bit concerning because uh, what the young adults don't realize is that uh, they might be, they're less, we know that they're less attentive to their own symptoms, but that they might bring the illness home to their own families. So the real question here becomes is, why is it that they're, they're, they're behaving this way? And by that, I mean they're, they're socializing more with larger group of friends at this time. And I think the message there is we need to really be able to figure out a way to communicate to them that the threat is still there uh, and that we're not yet at the finish line. Um, more so, and I guess this with everything, more so uh, the situation in urban areas where we're seeing these increases. Yeah, and that's typical. So in the urban areas, there's more of sort of people can't be locked in small spaces. You know, like I look at uh, parts of Hamilton and Toronto, if you're in the downtown core of Hamilton, people live in small apartments. They want to be outside. They want to engage with their friends. They've been locked up for quite a few months now. Uh, and it's summer weather. They re- reopen things. And so they do believe that uh, it, it's much easier for them to be outside. And we also have to remember that the evidence tells us that younger adults tend to uh, pay less attention to their health period overall. Yeah. So, uh, and that causes the problem, right? Um, are young people getting as, as sick? I mean, obviously, we've heard that it, it's certainly having more an effect on, on the older generation than the younger generation. That being said, are there still those in the younger age categories that are getting quite ill? According to the evidence that's been published so far around this, it doesn't seem like it. I think it's still the messaging there is older adults, immunocompromised individuals. Uh, and the, the, the risk here that we're trying to like prevent from happening is that uh, we don't want the younger adults to bring the illness to their families, uh, to, to, their, to the elderly families or immunocompromised in their own communities. So how do we target that? I think this is why the province's move towards more specific data has been so helpful. Uh, because now we're able to engage in this conversation of saying, okay, now that we know that our younger adults are more testing positive, what can we do uh, in, in, at this time to address this problem? Uh, we heard, I heard something, uh, I read something the other day in regard to blood type, that it may affect one blood type other than, uh, more than the other. Is there any truth to that, any accuracy there? I'm not sure about that. I haven't really seen the evidence around the blood type, and so it's very difficult to really provide a comment on that before we're actually reviewing the evidence. But it doesn't seem to be anywhere that I've seen recently. And what about the use of steroids? We've heard uh, information from the UK that that's been of help. Uh, there was a study that just came out recently about dexamethasone, having a, which is a steroid, having a potential uh, hope for treatment. But again, the evidence there and the research is still... Uh, under trials and so it's very hard to assess that and we leave it to our really our people who are on the ward treating our patients to make that call Uh, and uh, as from the research perspective that's still not clear the message is still to wait on that uh once again today uh down below 100 or sorry 200 uh cases uh we're at 173 i believe for ontario three deaths uh that's uh, a few days in a row below 200 how encouraging is that 
it is encouraging. I think we're seeing a lot of positive signs throughout. Uh, and again, we, we reiterate the message that the better data we have, uh, the more clear idea of who we need to target, that our policies will get better over time. I mean, this is the whole idea, Scott, that you and I discussed before about regional policies as opposed to like uh, province-wide. We can actually apply it now to subpopulation. We applied it to our long-term care centers. We knew that our elderly were at higher risk, so we created policies for that. And now I think we're all thinking about the younger adults and how can we get ahead of that one. Uh, we're certainly hearing in other parts of the world uh, the resurgence of cases. Uh, Beijing has reported uh, some new cases, and it certainly looks like uh, uh, certainly parts of the United States are still continuing to accelerate. Uh, how concerning is that? Is that a second wave? I think with the U.S., it's just probably not being prepared in the first place. But what about what's happening in Beijing with the second wave? Well, from what I read about Beijing and with their efforts to actually get ahead of this, you are correct. There have been uh, new cases that emerge in, in, in Beijing, and they, what they've done right away is close down their schools uh, and bring the kids basically home to make sure that they get ahead of that. I think we're going to continue to hear those reports. There won't be an end to this until we see a vaccine or a treatment in place. Uh, we're going to hear about cases popping up in different parts of the world. Do not be surprised if you also hear such reports coming out of New Zealand. Uh, right now, there's still mm. under strict measures of air travel control. And, you know, many people are using New Zealand as the example of what we are hoping to get to. That doesn't mean that New Zealand won't see a resurgence of cases, depending when they loosen up the restrictions. So this is part of the way that the infectious disease works. Your thoughts on what's happening uh, in the United States? Um, it just seems that it could get worse. What? And I mean, you know, obviously, we don't have a crystal ball here. But what are your thoughts about the direction they're heading in? Well, it's a very different health system than ours. You know, their system is very much more privatized. So there are many, many issues there to address. Also, determinative health is a big factor when you look at policies you put forward. It seems like their policies around COVID-19 have not been as comprehensive or, or as aggressive as ours have been. It's, this is not to say that one country is better than the other. We don't know. I mean, like you said, we don't have a crystal ball to look into the future. Uh, all we can do is use the best available evidence to predict what will happen. I think that the situation in the U.S. will probably get worse before it gets better. Uh, and that uh, they're trying their best state by state level to see what works for their own state uh, rather than a national strategy. And this is the call for a national strategy when it comes to infectious disease control. Uh, we've certainly seen uh, the border, U.S.-Canadian border uh, closure extended into July. How important is that? Can you see this border being closed right through to Labor Day? I could see it closed as long as we don't, uh, as long as we can protect our sort of our people. And by that, I mean, is that we look at, I bring up New Zealand again, because, <clears throat> apologies, we bring up New Zealand again, because they were an example of a country, although they've had zero cases, they still remained closed borders. Uh, and I think the closures of borders are going to continue uh, until we can reassure ourselves that we're not going to have a massive surge of cases if we open our, our borders. And it's a very fine line. It's a difficult one to assess, too, because the evidence is all over the place. There's evidence that tells us that we need to close our borders early on and that later on they're ineffective. Uh, and there's evidence that tells you, no, we should continue closing our borders as long as the virus is in our community. So I think it's a give and take, and we will see what happens as time progresses. We've all been talking about a second wave, Ahmad. What will cause a second wave? Is that just the obvious reopening of things as people start to socialize more? We're, about, we're bound to see it. Or is this 
like a mutation thing where all of a sudden, you know, many are, are, are thinking, my goodness, what if this, we get through this part of it and then the fall, boom, it, it comes back again. What will cause that second stage? Second wave would happen if we see more of a risk of transmission of the disease. And by that, I mean, as more people go out in the communities, as we're seeing with our young adults and engage with their friends in social settings, not practicing the interventions and the advice of the experts in the field, we're going to see a second wave. Uh, that's not to say that it's inevitable. It will happen. We will see numbers increase as we reopen things. The real question here is that, can we get? Can we treat those cases? Can we get? Can we urge everybody to get tested? I think what Will did, uh, your producer, is very responsible behavior. Mm. You know, he went out, he got tested. I applaud him for that. He didn't wait for somebody to tell him to do so. He sort of used the evidence that's available, the resources that our province has provided for us to get tested. I urge every, anybody who thinks they might be exposed to COVID-19 or wants to get a peace of mind to really take advantage of testing. We've increased the testing capacity throughout the province. Uh, and that's the goal, right? To get everybody tested. Uh, last question. Are you just, are we just expecting a spike in the fall simply because that's when the seasonal flu starts? Uh, I think that it's going to be very difficult to say that at this moment, what, when we will see sort of an increase in the spike, we will see uh, that they're going to be increasing the flu uh, because of the season change. Uh, but I think that we'll have to wait till then to see how, how much further ahead have we been able to reduce our current caseload. Uh, sorry, this will be the last question. Sure. Uh, yesterday, Sick Kids Hospital releasing study in regard to getting kids back in school. They say, you know, mental health wise, it's just something we've got to aim for. We got to work harder to get them back there. And they're talking about uh, what things will look like in September. Your thoughts as the kids go back? There's been actually quite a few studies that looked into uh, the effectiveness of closing schools. Uh, and one of them actually was a, a systematic review, which is a review of all the studies. So in our world of research, it's the highest quality of studies. And it showed that when you open schools back up, you're allowing for the social support to happen between the children. And that is really, really important. But there is also the risk that you might increase infection rates. Uh, and so I think that that's a question that's going to have to determine province by province and decide how we're going to move forward in that come school, school opening times. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. 226 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. News on the web. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Lots to talk about. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, pop culture and PR expert. Alyssa PR. She is with us now. Alyssa Freeman, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. As always, Scott. Before we get to the branding stuff that you are an expert on, want to ask you real quick your thoughts on the Prime Minister uh, not getting his seat on the UN Security Council. This was a big deal for him, probably less for Canadians. How does he handle this moving forward? Because, uh, again, everybody thought everybody loved the Prime Minister and everybody loves Canada, and clearly not the case. Well, he has been taking a bit of a shellacking on this, hasn't he, Scott? And we know mm-hmm. that... You know, uh, there were things where he was out of the country and he should have been out of the, in the country when instead of hobnobbing with those countries that could have provided uh, him with the support and the votes to get Canada on that, although albeit a temporary seat on the Security Council. So uh, people understand that he was, he was putting forth a full court press, quite honestly, on this. And I think this is something that, um, you know, his father didn't achieve. And this is something that he really wanted to achieve. I think he's smarting from this, number one. I think it's a bit of an ego blow, number two. And quite honestly, it's been a field day for his critics. 
Uh, all right, I want to get to this next issue. Uh, Aunt Jemima decided they're going to change the name. I remember when they altered the Aunt Jemima logo, I think about 20 or 30 years ago, and kind of, <laughs> I think they took the hat off and updated uh, Aunt Jemima. Why not remove it then? Your thoughts on all of this? Honestly, you know, what took them so long? Yeah. I have to say that there's been problems with this uh, logo for a very long time. And it is certainly not, not the first time that uh, Quaker has received criticism about it. But did it really take worldwide protest in order for push, uh, for, for push come to shove on this? And now they're releasing statements that we realize this is out of step, that we realize that uh, this is based on um, racist stereotypes, and we need to not do that. Really? Uh, you know, in their statement, which is obviously very, very carefully crafted by a PR, by their communications people and or an agency, as we work to make progress toward racial equality through several initiatives of taking a hard look at their brands to make sure they reflect their values and meet our consumers' expectations. Well, what were your values before, is what I want to know, uh, before you decided that your brand, um, which was obviously emblematic of a racial stereotype, what were your values before, and gee, did they just sort of flip on a dime two days ago? So that's, that's really the questions that a lot of these brands, but especially Quaker Foods, has to answer. And I guess that, okay, making this move now is better than never making it. Um, but it certainly doesn't uh, dismiss how long it took in order to get something like this uh, off mm. the ground and actually happening. Uh, is this discussion now going to move back to sport logos, sport team names? You mean as the Washington Redskins? Yes. Like, you know, pretend not to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just might. Some of these discussions provide a gateway to other issues, which have been essentially swept under the rug, uh, get a little bit of airtime every now and then, and then, uh, you know, then you don't hear about them. But what they do is they do provide those narratives that continually get pushed aside when it comes to racial stereotypes in order for them to gain some sort of uh, traction and potential resurrection. Again, the Washington Redskins are, are uh, you know, using a, an emblematic trope that is obviously out of step with uh, the, ta- the times of today. But the NFL has never been one of your more progressive organizations. You know, the fact that Roger Goodell is now just coming out and saying, hey, everybody, uh, NFL teams, you should really give Colin Kaepernick uh, another chance. And yeah. Somebody else on the NFL board chimes in and says, hey, what about you, Minnesota Vikings? I mean, honestly. Really? I mean, yeah. this is just blatant virtual sing- uh, virtue sing- signaling. And I think that everybody, their consumers, their fans, uh, see through it. All right. These are iconic brands that we're talking about here. What is the rebrand going to look like? How difficult a- an assignment is that to rebrand these products? You know, I think that they're uh, they're looking at the assignment as a as a as a really great challenge. So whatever agency they give this to, and typically large agencies like Quaker Foods, which is owned by PepsiCo, um, they have agencies that are what they call AOR, agencies of record. So they're on retainer and they know the brands really, really well. Trust me, they are now going to firstly engage in, um, in testing. They're going to poll. They're going to do their focus groups. So they will get a good understanding of, 
you know, their hits and their misses. And then once they collate all that information, then the creative team can start to get together and uh, recreate a new branding for the product. People like the taste of the product. So if you've been buying this product and you've enjoyed the taste of it, then that's not going to change. It's what the product represents and how it's being represented is going to change. Do you make a big deal about the change or do you just do it? You just do it. Everybody knows you're going to do it. Just do it. Are the eyes of the world on But you're not going to sit there and say, Aunt Jemima is now this. I think that people will understand that it is a brand relaunch and I think that they have to think very carefully about that brand relaunch and the the PR implications around it. And I think that they also have to expand their circle of executives and bring in uh, subject matter experts that can actually help guide them on the sensitivities of the rebranding and of the language that they should be using now and going forward. You know, Quaker Oats really has to, and PepsiCo, they've got to look at their boards. They have to look at their senior teams. You you know, you need to, if you're going to um, talk about diversity and you're going to talk about believing in diversity, well, you've got to show it at the elite levels, at the C-suite levels, as we call them. So based on that, Quaker Oats and many, you know, much of corporate America really has to take a hard look at themselves as they navigate what it truly means to uh, support diversity. you know, better discussion around race in this in this continent. Alyssa Freeman has been with us. Alyssa PR, a PR and pop, uh, pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott, and you be well, too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.